0: We are going to be in Romans 15. We are reading verses 14 through 16 here at the beginning. Let us hear the very words of the Lord. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, open our hearts today to your word this morning. By your spirit, Father God, would you embolden our our church in the preaching of the word. Father, cast aside anything of, of my own, and Lord, only stick into our hearts what is of you and your spirit. Lord, we we pray that today you would even save the lost among us. We ask this in Jesus' name and all God's children said, Amen. amen. Leaving your Bibles open, please, you can be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Eric Maddy. I get the privilege of bringing the word to you this morning. Pastor Dan will be back next week. Um, and today we begin uh, the closing section of Romans. And what I read was just the beginning. We're going to be covering Romans 15, 14 through 33. It's going to be an overview of the entire passage. But don't be tempted to think that just because the truths and the the teachings are not as straightforward in this section as maybe it is in the previous 14, 15 chapters... That, well, it's just a conclusion. We could just close the book on Romans now. (laughs) No. No, like all of Scripture, this has value to our understanding and for our faith as well. So uh, let's get into today's message. The title of my message this morning, I have some notes for you available in the bulletins. It's called An Example for All Christians. Now let me give you the 10-second context of where we are at within the book of Romans. With Paul wrapping up his preaching and retaining, on retaining church unity amongst members who disagree and there are different nationalities, he now gets personal in his comments to the Romans. Now, in this personal section of Scripture, verses 14 to 33 to the Romans, we see that God, who is the true author of the book of Romans, we see God's word revealing Paul's heart. I believe the Lord is letting us see this so that we will be challenged and stirred to live our lives as justified by faith believers, not just in doctrine and not just in deeds, but also in heart motive and attitude. So Paul is an example for all believers in three ways. Paul is is an example, first of all, in his perspective on the people of God, secondly, for his passion for his calling and ministry, and then third, for prayerful dependence on God and others. So let's dive into that simple outline. First of all, the perspective on God's people. He is an example for us, and we just read those verses 14 through 16. Uh, Paul is basically returning to the theme of the letter's introduction, where he is talking about his ministry and where he's talking about his vision. But I want to call out for you, as you look within your Bible, a couple of things about what he is saying here and how he is saying it. First of all, Paul has a very affectionate tone. Now, throughout the letter of Romans, we see that he addresses them as brothers or brothers or sisters in Christ. He is very much about the family of God and and making that, that connection. But here, in this verse, he says an emphatic, my brothers and sisters, my brother and sister. Recall that Paul just got done uh, with some very hard things to say about the weaker and stronger brothers. Add to the fact that those who were listening to this letter from someone else, someone else's voice, could be misconstruing his intent on that section. And add to the fact that the Romans and and Paul have never seen each other face-to-face yet, so they don't have a a name with, with these words quite yet. Plus, add that some circles felt... The Apostle Paul was just an abrasive person anyway. This add-on to the word, my, brothers and sisters, feels warmer. It feels a sense of addressing them in a more loving way. This modifier to the subject of brother and sister adds a sense of overflowing love from his heart. That Paul is addressing his true family. Now, why is this important? It's important because of the second thing I want you to notice. First off in in this section, that is Paul is affirming their faith. You notice again within your Bible, Paul says, I'm satisfied about you. Many translations have the word convinced, another good way of translating that. Paul is saying that he is confident in them. He is believing the testimony of the Romans whose faith is known throughout the world. As we recall all the way back in Romans chapter 1, he said, your faith is known throughout the known world, Romans and he's saying, I, I'm confident of that faith. He says that their faith manifests not only with occasional virtuous uh, acts, but Paul is saying that they're full, that they're rich in moral goodness, that they're outstandingly kind and unselfish and generous and loving and humble. Paul also affirms their faith's depth by calling their knowledge full that they're amply filled. Of course, Paul is referring to their knowledge of Christ and of God. And, and he also says in affirming them, that knowledge can is used in wisdom as you can teach and admonish one another. Now, you might be thinking with such a glowing description, should we be looking at the example of the Romans here? Well, in some ways, yes. But I only get one week to preach. <laughs> so we're going to fly over that. I want to point out to you the greater example of Paul and his perspective of God's word, of God's people. Paul affirms that the Romans are full of goodness, morally speaking, filled with all knowledge gospel-wise, and to instruct and admonish one another. But when you take into consideration the, the, the other sections we were just reading, chapter 11, verse 18, their goodness seems to be deficient when he is warning them in verse 18, don't be arrogant of something to the unbelieving Jews because you have received something by grace. Their goodness appeared to be wanting when Paul discusses that the weak have taken on a judgmental spirit and that the strong despise the weak. When you take into consideration Paul implies in chapter 11 verse 25 that they were ignorant of God's plan to save both Jews and Gentiles. It doesn't seem like the Romans have as full of knowledge of God and the gospel. And as for their ability to instruct, well, we understand and know that Paul has, has this universal viewpoint that the church ministry, that the body of Christ are the ministers of Jesus that ministry work is to be done by the members of the church and that the elders and the pastors are to be equipping members for the work of the ministry. And while they appear to be a little limited here because even he had to talk them through how to handle the non-moral matter of what foods were and were not allowed to eat at their communal meal. So when you see this passage, you begin to wonder, is Paul just brown-nosing them? Is he just trying to butter them up so when he comes knocking on that door, he's gonna, he, he wants to be you know, greeted friendly and warmly, but, but maybe he's afraid that, that, that if he knocks on that door, they'll just open the door and go, oh, it's you. Well, what we actually see here is very different than what we might think. And it's very different than what we see in the Corinthian letters. In the Corinthian letters, we see that Paul is rebuking people. He is correcting people. But the Roman letter sees no tone like that. And even if these blemishes I just mentioned were found among the Roman believers, Paul here is affirming affectionately affectionately his high regard for their faith as a church. Paul's perspective on the people of God, as Matthew Henry says, is eager to believe good concerning others. Matthew Henry also says, In his commentary on this section, we are not to be so simple as to believe everything said by hearsay, but not so skeptical as to believe nothing. Paul is extending a common courtesy here that we are all invited in the body of Christ to have, and that we are to have a perspective on our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and that is to assume the better of your fellow Christian as moderately mature believers. Now, you may be asking, well, what if I find that my fellow Christian has evidence in their work, in their worship, and in their, their worldview, positive proof that they're immature? <laughs> I'll give you this advice. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We all have immature areas in which We have blind spots that we have yet to repent of. We are encouraged to examine our life and to examine one another and sharpen one another. But it is better to reach an immature believer in Christ by the avenue of reminding and restating instead of self-righteous judgment or of despised dispositions. Does that sound familiar to the previous few chapters before the strong versus the weak? Paul is saying this in verse 15 within your Bibles. I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. He knew that they knew this. Let me encourage you. Don't allow petty jealousy or insecurity. Cloud your perspective on the people of God that are around you. The people of God in the same aisle as you, the people of God that's in front of you or behind you, the people of God that are in the other service, the people of God that are from other churches, the brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't allow relational hurts from one experience in a bad relationship overlap and stifle other potential good relationships. As believers in Jesus, we have all at one point known that our one need and our one and deepest cry is Jesus, save me. And what bonds us, therefore, and therefore it should also affect the way we see our brothers and sisters here, is not that we walk into this room having it all together, but rather we walk into this room as all a work in progress all relaying and relying upon the mercy of God that is new every morning. God is the overcomer in, in our lives, and God is sanctifying us to be like Christ. Even the most moderately mature believer in Christ in this room, no matter how you rank it, and, and that's, that's part of the problem, isn't it? We rank godliness in certain ways. We rank righteousness through outside obedience or discipline of the body and mind, yet not knowing the motive of why the heart does these things. We rank godliness of how well we know the Bible, this doctrine, the theological concepts, the answers, not knowing if these truths have truly saved that person and has challenged that person or has changed that person. We dare to rank maturity in Christ by the standards that we have got all together, but maybe others don't. Even the most moderately mature believer in Christ in this room, no matter how you measure it, still has the need for Jesus to save them, to sanctify them, that they need Jesus to grow them up in parts that are blinded and parts that are immature. So the example of Paul's perspective of the people of God is one that is eager to think the better of our brothers and sisters in Christ to give them the benefit of the doubt. And this is a heart attitude. And if if that proves to be difficult for a variety of legitimate reasons, then I would encourage you with this. Be gracious as God has been gracious with you. Be patient as God has been patient with you. That's our first point. Let's go to the second point. Number two, Paul is an example for all believers in his passion for calling and ministry. Verse 17 in your Bibles. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Just an interesting side note. Within the original language, this entire section that I just read is all one complex sentence. While in the English translations, it presents several uh, sentences. Just a side note. But immediately in this section, we see two English phrases pop our attention. The first one is, I have reason to be proud of my work. And then there's a few verses later, Paul says, I make it my ambition now, when it comes to being proud and having ambition, we can be thrown off that these words seem to be counterintuitive and in competition to walking humbly before God and doing God's work. But reading these phrases in context is what's important. Looking within your Bibles, in Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ Has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. You see, Paul's mood here is not one of vain and self glorifying, but rather it is done out of a thankfulness. He is thankful for the apostleship that he has been given, that the Lord has called him to, to bring Gentiles to obedience. And what that means is is that the Gentiles, when Paul would go, he would preach the gospel. And he presented and say that there is a command in the gospel to leave their former ways and commit themselves to following Jesus. That is, to turn from sin and to trust in Jesus. And as a result of Paul presenting this, God was supernaturally regenerating and making people born again and creating new life in people that were dead. And they were being obedient to answer the gospel's call. And Paul saw this. Paul's own record in Corinthians is that he has no game. If you recall in Corinthians, he says, I came to you weak, fearful, and trembling. He says, I have no lofty speech and no wisdom. You see, Paul was a normal man, saved by the grace of God, and desiring to glorify God through his calling to minister to the Gentiles, this calling became his passion. And that passion to glorify God by ministering to the Gentiles became his lifelong goal. And then verse 20, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. He mentions here his ministry in light of the prophecy about Jesus where, where he used to take the good news to places that have never heard. You see, Paul sees his ministry as an extension of Christ's ministry. Now, we know that that Paul did preach early on in his his itinerary preaching that he preached to churches that were not planted by himself. But so this ambition to preach where no church was planted was an evolving life goal. This is something that he went toward that became his passion. But there's something else about this passion. Verse 22, look with me. He says, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Remember, he has a heart to say, Romans, I want to see you. I loved hearing about your faith. I'm looking forward to you. But he is actually here stating the actual reason why he hasn't done so. And the reason why is because he has this passion to preach the gospel where it's not been preached. And it kept him from going out of the way to to Rome and to visit them. This is his excuse for not seeing him. His passion kept him focused on the greater thing he was called to. But then look at verse 23 and 24. But now, since I, am no, longer, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years, this is a many years thing. He, he is, he's been putting this off for a long time. He says, I've longed for many years to come to you. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. And to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Again, Paul has a tunnel vision even in visiting the, the, the Romans. He's saying, Rome isn't the final place I'm going. I want to go to Spain because the gospel has not been brought there yet. So even with this tunnel vision again, he's looking for two things. He's looking for restorative fellowship with the Romans and then aid in getting to and sharing the gospel in Spain. But then verse 25. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do, do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessing, they ought also be of the service To them in material blessings. You see, this project of Paul is that he was going around and and in the Gentile churches, the Gentile world, he was collecting for the the poor in Jerusalem because there was a famine that struck Jerusalem as a city, as an area, back in 46 to 48 AD. And there was a deep need here. But a strong motive for this gift was the unifying effect such a gift was going to have on the impact of the church see, the, both the gesture of giving and the gesture of receiving would be a sign of recognizing and, and accepting both the Jews and the Gentiles into their family. You see, Paul's passion to bridge any gap that was between the Jews and the Gentile, he saw as an outworking of his ministry to the Gentiles. Paul's passion for his calling and ministry should be an example for us to take account of our life's call and work. We know that through scripture study and Bible summary, that the purpose of our lives is to glorify God in everything that we do. For the born-again believer, there is no difference between the sacred and the secular job. We are all called on by God to be productive, to have ambitions until we are called home to heaven but they are to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and to honor his working through in these manners. To walk humbly is not to soften ambitions to do big things for God, nor is it to despise the little routine things that we do day in and day out that significantly feel like they're nothing for the kingdom. We as God's people should measure our days not by what we do, But why we do it. Because why we live exalts what we worship. Why we live exalts what we worship. Why do I invest in school? Why do I go to work for my job? Why do I raise my kids? Why do I want to get married? Why are the grandchildren supposed to be my pride and joy? Why is retirement the very thing I'm told to work for? You see, our ambitions are to be fueled through the purposes of God, his kingdom, and his glory. We are to live bigger than for ourselves. And within these ambitions, God is calling us to a person, a place, or or a people in which we are to minister and shine the light of Jesus to and Lord willing, we will have the opportunity to share the gospel with them. Or Lord willing, we will be there to encourage the believers in those circles. You may not be called to a full-time ministry like our pastors to preach the gospel. But there are people in your life that have never been told of Jesus. There are some people in your circles that have never heard the true gospel. This is not hard to believe when we live in a post-Christian culture that we have an entire generation that has not gone to church, have no religion, and they're spiritually bankrupt. We have a lot of spiritual seekers with no grounding whatsoever. And since you are in the world for your work and with your family and with your friends, let your light shine for Christ you will minister and share the gospel in your own unique way that I or the elders or the pastors may never be able to do or even get the chance to. I mean, yes, keep inviting them to church. Keep inviting people to come to church. But realize that you might be the one to bridge the gap of knowledge that completely agnostic people don't have. That is our calling That is our mission, to go and make disciples of all nations and all neighborhoods near and far for the glory of God. Tim Keller, uh, he's a retired pastor in the city of New York. He says this, there are some needs only you can see. There are only some hands only you can hold. And there are some people only you can reach. What are you passionately living for? Does it consume your priorities? Does it paint over everything you do and why you do it? Does it give you the tunnel vision needed to complete it to the glorifying of God? So, that example of Paul's passion for his calling and ministry should stir our hearts both individually but also corporately as a church body. What are we doing for the glory of God in this neighborhood? As a family of God, to live out our life's calling with the heart to glorify God. That's the second example. Let's look at the third example, number three. Paul is an example for all believers in his prayerful dependence on God and others. Verse 30 I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God. On my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service of Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Now, this example seems pretty straightforward, right? Paul is not looking for a formal, meekish, remember-as-you-go prayer person. He is appealing. He is summoning the Roman believers, strive with me. It's a struggle. This was not a mere request, but a call to action because of what was at stake. What was Paul going up against? Well, again, verse 31, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers of Judea. That's his first request. You see, Paul was fully aware of the violent opposition to the gospel that unbelieving and disobedient Jews lashed out with. Because why? Because before his conversion, he was a persecutor of the Christian church. And now as the turncoat, he was now going to be a target on his back because he is now joined in their eyes the enemy. Paul was aware of it because he initiated that same persecution to believing Jews. And he's like, I need prayer. But even, even receiving repeated warnings, he says in Acts chapter 20, verse 22. You can write this down and look it up later. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me, except that the Spirit, Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. <laughs> the Spirit of God through the the different cities he was, he, was, he was visiting had warned him that it is coming, that the affliction and that the imprisonment is coming when he goes to Jerusalem. So you can see why he had this prayer request. He wasn't afraid to die. But going on in Acts 20, verse 24, But I do not account my life any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. That's, that's all he wanted to do. And sure enough, Acts 23, a couple of chapters over, it says, it was recorded by Luke, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Think about that. We're not gonna eat, guys. We're not gonna drink anything until we kill Paul. That's how severe these men wanted Paul dead. And Paul was aware of this. The second request in, in these verses, verse 31 back at Romans 15, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Paul was determined to fulfill this project and ministry of collecting donations to the encourage the believers in Jerusalem regardless of the threat. And the significance of his fund, of this fund in Paul's eyes is that it's so important. He's risking his life, but yet he's praying for safety. He's also concerned, though, for the Jewish believers' rejection of this gift. So he's asking, hey, when you pray, pray that their hearts would be accepting of this gift because he didn't know what was going to happen when he said, hey, here's a gift from the Gentiles. How is that going to go? What is at stake in Paul's view is the unity of the church as a whole and the further advancement of the gospel in the world. And then the third request found in verse 32. By God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Now, this is not so much a request as much as it is he's saying, listen, I'm praying for these. Can you pray for these two things? And, And out of those two successful things, that, that I can get to you with joy and be refreshed. He views his, his trip to Jerusalem and his trip to Rome as linked together. As one goes, so does the other. And in his statement, he is hopeful that his visit to Rome would be a relaxing one. Yet, Paul puts himself in submission, both body and soul, comfort and mission, to the wise and sovereign will of God by saying, by God's will. And I say that because we do know somewhat of how the Lord had answered these prayers. Was Paul delivered from unbelieving Jews? Not exactly. Paul was arrested, but he was never slain. So there are probably still some Jews who are fasting and praying for that. Was the gift accepted by the Jewish believers? Acts doesn't say explicitly, but we can look in chapter 21 and in chapter 24 that there are hints that Paul's return was very welcome and very warm, that all things went well. So we know that that gift was received in good spirit. Did Paul get to Rome with joy and get refreshed? Well, not exactly. It was two years later, first of all, and secondly, it was within chains, Not exactly the vacation by the sea he was looking for. And while things didn't turn out exactly the way Paul preferred and prayed for, he was able to see how things work out together for the glory of God, by God's will. In fact, when he was in a Roman's prison, he wrote to the Philippians saying, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. There it is again, this tunnel vision for the gospel to be advanced and seeing that although God's will be done and I'm uncomfortable and nothing turned out the way that that, that I turned out, you know, I I came in chains and and I'm maybe getting as refreshed as I hoped. He says, I see how it served to advance the gospel. Again, that mission. Paul's example for us here is that we are not to be afraid to enlist prayerful help. The enemy would have us believe it's better to lone ranger our lives than to bother our Christian friends because they're too busy. All the passion in the world still has to go up against the opposition in the world to Jesus Christ. So we need God to answer the prayers through others who may be praying for us more boldly than ourselves. Do you have a prayer warrior in your life that is praying more boldly for you? do not fall into independence idolatry to say, I I can handle this on my own. I I can do this by myself, me and Jesus. We're called to care for one another. We must fight this heart condition that wants to do it all by itself. Paul is also an example for us that we're not afraid to be dependent on God. You see, we are to accept that as Christians... We are solely dependent on God. And to pray and to express is a way of trusting him. It's it's the voice of our faith, prayer is. And our father knows what is best for us, not only to be relieved of, of us, but he knows what to leave on us and therefore allow our hearts to be dependently trusting him. So that's Paul's example to all believers. Those three things In closing, let me, let me assure you, if you're a visitor here, that we are a Christ-following church. And what we see here is Paul's heart example is that he is imitating Christ. First Corinthians 11:1, Paul says, "Be imitators of me as I am, I am of Christ." You see, Paul had Christ's perspective of people of God and treated them as Jesus did, courteous, honestly, and gracious. Paul had Christ's passion for calling and ministry and took up his cross and died to himself and stayed faithful to God's will just as Jesus did when he got arrested that night. It was on his way to the redemption mission he was about ready to accomplish at the cross. Paul had Christ's prayerful dependence of God and others Again, exemplified, when Christ went to Gethsemane, he said, Peter, James, John, come with me. I I need prayer. Let's pray together, knowing full disclosure what was to come, and he said within those prayers, Lord, your will be done. Let our lives be challenged and strengthened that we would follow Christ in such a way. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have examples throughout Scripture that we are to find encouragement from and be challenged in our walk with the worldview perspective of how you see us, how you call us, how dependent we are on you. To live out these examples more intently, Lord, may we be the ambassadors in our work, our family, our neighborhood. To brag on your grace that has saved us and planted us, planted inside of us a joy that is found in our lives. And Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's children said, Amen.